Welcome to the podcast, Don't Forget Me, about the life and times of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. A preface with the words of Steve Glacier. My wife, Lynn, suggested a short explanation as to the motives behind writing this. Let's call it a time capsule. The first reason is that this is a slice of the story that is Stephen Glaser, to be shared by our four children, ten beautiful grandchildren, friends, and anyone who is curious about the start of rock and roll, just so they know more about their friend, father, grandfather. This is my last chance to say to the world, here I am. This is my story. Or, I could just be dust in the wind, to coin a phrase. The second reason is to share the story with anyone who might be interested in the way it really was, from the perspective of a teenager who happened to be blessed to take part in this thing we call rock and roll. This is what really happened to me, and to some extent, to all those unsung heroes who almost made it to the top. For every performer who made it to the top, there are thousands of performers like me and the Cavaliers who could have succeeded, but for a simple twist of fate or luck or life getting in the way. We did not triumph. The ultimate aim of this book is to give you a bird's-eye view of the world of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers as events unfolded. I leave the history of that time and the historical and social setting where the events took place to the historians who are better suited to write about the bigotry, social injustice, and the exploitation of the artists and songwriters of that period. This is my personal story about rock and roll of the 50s and 60s and beyond. P.S. Thank you, Lynn, for being right as rain, as always. Chapter One. I'm going to admit it, okay? <laughs> for watching this, if it's ever shown anywhere, I will deny, I will say it was fixed. But it was kind of, I was, my problem was, I really felt in my heart I wanted to call a couple of the guys black. But mm. they insisted upon using the word Negro at the time, and I was afraid if I ever called Steve and I have been trying to determine why I left the group. But Alan Alan Morgan just said it, why I quit the group, because we disputed this very recently. I do believe I did quit. Yeah, I do yeah. believe. Oh, yes, I don't think did. I was you, thrown out. You, you, no, you quit because oh, of the fact that, that we have a witness. We wouldn't go your way. You, you. It was you know, artistic, artistic. That's right. Differences. That's, that's all it was. We wanted to do the stuff on the corner, and you wanted to do it the right way. We wanted to do do what, well, and you, you mm-hmm. wanted to do it the right way. Would you yeah. say right or white? White way. No, I said the right way. I, I said the white right way. way. Yes, I wanted to do it the black way, <laughs> which is true. I had this thing, and I was... Okay, here we are in Don Kay's doo-wop shop. I said my guest would be Scott Stevens, lead voice of the Cavaliers, and uh, Scott's on the line. Nice to have you back in the doo-wop shop again. It's great to be back. How are you? All right, I'm pretty good. I'm still doing it. Different address, but we're here on the Belmont Cincinnati Radio this time. And uh, you have a long, rich history in this music, and... Uh, You've also written a book. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, but let's find out. You were a guy from originally born in, uh, I think, Hackensack, right? New Jersey? Hackensack, New Jersey. Moved to Brooklyn, Brooklyn. when I was a year old. And, and then you uh, wound up in the Bronx, right? Okay. So where does our story begin? It all began under the covers of a bed on a hot Sunday night 
In the summer of 1953, school had just recessed, and Steve Glaser had moved from Brooklyn to the Sedgwick Projects in the Bronx. His dad had given him a portable radio. He thought it might be a guilt gift for taking him away from his Brooklyn. It was a red and silver plastic window into the wonders of rhythm and blues. On a Sunday night at 11 o'clock, the voice of Jocko, a.k.a. Douglas Henderson, and his show, Ace from Outer Space, could be heard. The music that came out of that little plastic box shook Steve to his core. He was hooked. And at the age of 12, the road to his future shone brightly ahead of him. Before we continue the Bronx part of this story, let's go back to the beginning. Steve was born in Hackensack, New Jersey on May 16, 1941. At the age of one, his family moved from his grandmother's house in Inglewood, New Jersey, to Brooklyn. Vincent Hurst was predominantly a white, Jewish, and Italian neighborhood of Brooklyn, just south of the Verrazano Bridge. The first person of color that he saw was in public school when he was nine years old in 1950. He remembers him walking into the classroom, and the chattering conversation suddenly stopped as the little boy took his seat. The chatter started again, but the subject matter had dramatically changed. Steve remembers going up to him after class to say hello. To Steve, he was just another kid to befriend, and that attitude would continue for him when forming the Satellites and later the Cavaliers. It was the voice that mattered, not the color of someone's skin. The block that Steve lived on, Bay 28th Street, his house was number 27, had two synagogues, one reform and one conservative. Steve discovered his voice and his passion for music in the synagogue and temple that he attended. Steve, believe it or not, was very religious as a kid. His parents, who were not at all religious, insisted that he go to Hebrew school three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Sunday morning. And boy, did he hate going on Sunday morning after having gone to school Monday through Friday. Steve and his best friend Stevie Scheiman would go to services together. And when the cantors would sing, he was mesmerized. He wanted to be a cantor. Truth be told, he just wanted to sing. He sang at synagogue, at school, in the shower, or along with the records that his father would bring home. He would sing along with the radio and with musical artists on their 25-inch black and white television. He remembers Your Hit Parade, a television show that had 50s white singers perform cover performances of the top 10 records on the charts that week. He thought it was very funny to watch and listen to white middle-aged singers try to sing rhythm and blues songs. He would laugh his ass off. Peals of laughter could be heard from the living room while they were all watching that show. He remembers clearly the excitement when his dad would bring home albums of classical music and Broadway shows, as well as some popular records of the 40s and 50s. They would gather in the living room and listen to the latest records. He remembers trying to imitate Perry Como, Vaughn Monroe, Frankie Lane, and Bing Crosby. He even tried his hand at being a ventriloquist. His parents got him a Jerry Mahoney hand puppet, and he would put on shows for his family and think he was pretty good at it. But he always went back to the singing. Throughout this story, I will talk about some well-known and not-so-well-known people that Steve met along his journey. Some were just a passing encounter and some had a profound effect on his road through life, especially on the singing part. During a conversation with his Aunt Sheila, discussing this story, his cousin Freddie reminded him of an incident that Steve had long forgotten. When he was 12 or 13 years old, 
He would visit his aunt in Brooklyn. The houses were close together, and there was a small backyard where he would play. On one occasion, he was playing in the backyard, and he had gotten into an argument with the girl next door. She was kind of cute, but he did his best to rile her up, and she ran back into the house in a bit of a stew. Many years later, he found out that this girl was Carly Simon, the Carly Simon. She would be driven in a limo from Manhattan to visit her aunt right next door to Aunt Sheila's in Brooklyn. Aunt Sheila was the first professional singer in Steve's family. Opera was her music of choice. Once she got married and had Steve's three cousins to raise, Freddie, Philip, and Richie, her singing career came to an abrupt halt. Uncle Max was a violinist who had died of pneumonia in his early 20s as a result of getting sick after attending a baseball game at Yankee Stadium. And Grandma Anna told him that that's how he got his middle name, Maxim. Both Cousin Fred and he believe that Cousin Max's ghost still resides in the attic of Grandma's house in Inglewood, New Jersey. But that's another story for another day. Back to the Bronx for the rest of the story. In 1953, the family received an eviction notice telling them they had to move from their illegal basement apartment. Truth be told, it was not a healthy environment for any of them. The place flooded whenever there was a bad rainstorm, and Steve developed asthma while living there. Nevertheless, when the news came that they were leaving for Brooklyn, Steve Glaser was devastated. They were refugees from Brooklyn. His family moved to the Sedgwick Projects in June of 1954. It was a hot summer day. They left the moving van at Bay 28th, boarded the BMT subway train at Ocean Parkway Station. He remembers looking out the window of the subway car, trying to soak in the last few of the old neighborhood, with tears running down his face. The apartment they moved into had no air conditioning, not even a fan, and only two bedrooms. So now he had to share one with his brother. The projects, that's what he would say whenever they came up in conversation, is in the University Heights section of the Bronx, bordered by University Avenue and Undercliff Avenue east to west, and 174th Street and the Cross Bronx Expressway north to south. From his bedroom window, he had a view of the expressway being built and witnessed the heart of the Bronx being torn out as they demolished whole neighborhoods to make way for the new highway. Many mornings, he would be shaken out of a sound sleep by the explosions from below as new roads were carved out. The Bronx, Yankee Land. In the 1950s, the Bronx was a breeding ground for musical talent. Dion and the Belmonts, Carly Simon, Bobby Darin, Edie Gourmet, Phil Spector, and the Earls, just to name a few. The ethnic population of the Bronx was predominantly Jewish and Italian, with some Irish thrown in as well. Sedgwick was one of three new urban development projects that gave lower-income families the opportunity to live in decent apartments at low rents. Today, there are over 600,000 residents in city-owned housing similar to Sedgwick throughout the five boroughs. If you moved up the financial ladder, you were politely asked to leave or pay more rent based on your income. The projects became a melting pot and the first truly integrated housing development in New York up to that time. Steve's parents were poor. His dad worked in the Diamond District in Manhattan on 47th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. He was a faucet maker, grinding the 21 flat surfaces of the diamonds until they sparkled with brilliance. He was paid by the number of diamonds he finished, but work was not steady. So he worked on the weekends at his dad's Uncle Joe's newsstand on West 86th Street in Manhattan. 
His mom had some part-time jobs. She became a hairstylist when they moved to the Bronx. Her main job was raising Steve and his brother, Jerry, which was no easy task. Steve went to Makeham's Junior High School, 82. Whenever they were asked what school they went to, they would just say, 82. He joined the choral group, and Jackie Morgan was in the same choral group, and that's how he knew he could sing. Jackie became the first member of their singing group, the Satellites. In the rest of the story, we will describe the physical and cultural setting from which the Satellites and Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers evolved. Yeah, moved to the Bronx. Now, if you stayed in Brooklyn, do you think the same thing would have happened? <laughs> or is everything relative? I think, I think the same thing would have happened because I would have gone to school with uh, a, lot of, you know, a lot of the uh, 50s performers that were Neil Diamond would have gone. I would have gone to the same school as Neil mm-hmm. and Neil Stacker. And um, it, it's very interesting. Uh, I, as a kid, I used to go to my aunt's house to, um, to play, uh, to, to visit. And, and I used to go to the backyard and I used to tease this girl who, who came to visit her, her uncle and aunt in the same, you know, in the, in the building right next door. Right. And years and years later that uh, I was talking to my cousin, he says, you know that girl that you used to tease every once in a while when you came to my house? I said, yeah. He said, well, that was Carly Simon. <laughs> <laughs> so you never know who you're yeah, going to run into in the backyard, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure we're going to run into somebody and still done rock and roll in the 50s. Now, Up but in the Bronx Bro- is where you put it together, but uh, what was your motivation, and when did you... Uh, find out that, uh, you know, Scott Stevens could sing? Well, you know, I, you know as, a, as, an, as an early kid, as an eight-year-old kid, I was uh, pretty religious as, a, as an eight-year-old Jewish kid in, in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with the music of the, you know, from the synagogue and all, and joined the choir. So I always wanted to sing. Um, I discovered rock and roll when I moved to the Bronx, and uh, my father gave me a little uh, Sony radio, and one night uh, on a Sunday evening, I'm, I tune in and I'm t- tuning in the dials and I hear Jocko and his show. Sure. Um, and I just fell in love with the music and I said, I want to do this. And I decided that I wanted to do something in rock and roll at the, at the ripe old age of 13. <laughs> <laughs> in 2017, I worked on a, a feature film with my partner and my wife. 2018, we went down, the way that I get involved in this whole story is we go down for a birthday party, for, for like a, a family birthday event, and there's this guy there, and his name is Harold. Harold's very nice, and he's heard that like I've been working, so I'm in the film industry, or that I, I do something there, and I had this script up that had done really well at over in Amazon, and Amazon toyed with it for a really long time and then they decided they didn't want to make anything that small ultimately so i was looking for something creative to do and harold said i know this guy who has a book his book uh it's it's small but it's a story about this this group from the 50s and i think that you should meet him i talked to harold a little bit actually Ended up talking to my father-in-law about it because Harold was his friend. And I'm trying to – they give me the name of the group, and I'm trying to figure out, like, what I can do there. So I reach out to them, like, on a, on a website. And it turns out that, like, only one of the members is still around. 
And he immediately messages me back, and he's like, oh, I can send you some materials. And he, so he sends me the book and a CD and all of these news articles that they've been you know, collecting. He and his wife have been collecting. And I start reading about the story. What they did was they were in New York City. Uh, specifically, they were in the Bronx. And they were just a couple of guys. At first, it was just two guys, and they're just putting together music because they can't. But I get involved because this story is like a, it's one of those things where things start to cross racial lines, kind of ahead of civil rights. And these guys didn't really know, like, black or white or, or whatever. They just knew music. And that was probably the, the most impressive part of the story to me was these kids – were just trying to figure out how to make money at music. I, I was sort of hooked from the start, but I, I was definitely in once the remaining members started talking to me. And I did have to explain, you know, making a movie is a long process. Most movies that, that people see, like, in a theater, with some exceptions, very rare exceptions, that those movies have been percolating for like five to seven years. Somebody had an idea, usually a producer. That producer gets a writer on board and starts attaching talent, and they start developing versions of the script. When you're doing a spec script, that's a, a speculative script or a prospective script. When, when you're doing a spec script like this, taking a story that has like a minor IP, it's not like it was a huge, big selling book, but it was a very personal story with a lot of history of the Bronx and, and different things in rock and roll. So this like, uh, this flash of time from like 1958 to 1964. When you start writing a script like that, you sort of have to look at like everything that was going on around it. And I had picked out like people they might've run into along the way. And I touched with the ages a little bit. And I, I put just a, a basic script together. They, they had started a script. Like someone had started a script for them, for, but I came on board to write it because I felt like the story needed to be told. And I felt like it would be a very different kind of script that I would have from sort of what was in my quiver, so to speak. If all my screenplays are arrows, this would be a different one, a very, very different purpose for this one. So I met Steve. And Steve had a very specific image in his head of how he wanted the movie to go. And he had told a very interesting story. And I started looking at clips from like the different things that he was thinking of to see how I could put the story together. And when it, when it came time to do a podcast about this, the main reason I wanted to do it was I wanted to document one, the process two the story and three, there's a lot of folks involved in this like podcast who are, children and grandchildren of people from the 50s, but there's people from the 50s involved who were, you know, adults then. And I wanted to preserve it in time because I knew if I didn't go ahead and do that, then I could potentially lose some of the stories, mainly just because time got away from things. And that became one of the central themes of the script that I was writing. It was how time can get away from life. Like, it, time can get away from people in life. They can end up not being able to get done what they thought they were going to get done. And sometimes, one of the underlying themes of the story is sometimes 
there was so much more life going on. You got caught up in living it. And I think as musicians and celebrities, I think as they age and, and look back at their lives, I think there is this overwhelming drive to do one more thing. And that, you know, I've, I've had that myself. I tend to look at it from the perspective of I want to do one big thing in this arena and then move on to the next arena. Sometimes it's a ladder going up and sometimes it's totally lateral. It's going sideways. But I think that there's this drive to be remembered, to leave the, the mark. So that's what was – there's this one media piece that ties all of this together that we'll talk about later in the series. But the overwhelming drive for the story was how – once you start to leave your mark, you don't want to be forgotten. And that's where Don't Forget Me comes from. That's the title to several of the things. What I originally got was this story, White Boy the Musical, a rock and roll story, White Boy, a uh, rock and roll story. It, it's, it's so interesting that it, you know, it, it's sort of a charged title at the time that it would have you know, become a big thing. So I had changed it. You know, it's still credited as the source material, but I had changed it to don't forget me because I felt like that was really that was really the heart of the story for a number of reasons.
Thanks for joining us. This is Don't Forget Me, a podcast about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Music and words are adapted with the permission of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. We hope you'll continue with us on the rest of this limited series and musical adventure. Check the show notes to find out more about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers.